大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome to a very special edition of the podcast of the Mercator Institute for China Studies. Um, for a change, we are not sitting in the studio in Berlin. I am in New York, and I'm joined by Jessica Betke, um, who works at China File at the Asia Society. And Jessica has set up a very special project recently. Um, it's called the China NGO Project, and that's exactly the topic we want to talk about today. Maybe I introduce you first because our listeners might not know you. You used to work at the U.S. State Department until beginning. Of 2017, if I'm not mistaken, you also made a short stint at Merricks as a visiting academic fellow, and nowadays, as I already said, you're at China File. Yeah, and well, let's talk a little bit about your project, which is a very big website project. I looked at it, and well, how did the idea come about? <laughs> yeah, thanks very much for having me. The website actually was conceived of before they ever hired me. I was just lucky enough to be brought on board as part of a, an idea that someone else was smart enough to think of. That was happened to be a really good idea. Essentially, I'm sure as as many of your listeners know, if they follow China, uh, China passed a law related to foreign NGOs operating there. Uh, it went into effect at the beginning of 2017, but there was years of sort of hand-wringing on both sides of the uh, ocean about what was going to happen with it. And there was multiple drafts that were released that had feedback from the international community and from the domestic community. And during that sort of drafting process, several people saw the need for a website to track what was actually happening once the law went into effect. So it's hard to know sometimes if you're in the thick of it, maybe if you're an NGO, you're trying to get registered, you're working on the ground in China, and all these new laws have come out. Not only, you know, what to do, what what are the actual mechanisms I need to go through in this in this new law, but also what what are other people doing? Part of the idea was to be able to bring people together virtually to be able to share experiences and know how other people are reacting and thinking about the law. So that's essentially what I was brought on board here at China File to do. I utilize a lot of Ministry of Public Security data since I'm not actually in China as much as I would like to be. But yeah, I try to use, utilize that data to give people a sense of what the trends are in terms of registrations and foreign groups working in China. So utilizing data of the Chinese government is one important part. Um, do you also get information from the NGOs on the ground? Um, how does that work? Do they speak openly? How, I mean, I can imagine it's a sensitive subject. How do you gather the information and um, how do you in the end present it so that nobody gets in trouble? All really good questions and you have managed to get right to the central nub of, of the challenge of my work pretty quickly. As you said, it's a sensitive subject and, and some people are more willing to to talk about that than others. One of the things that we did initially, again, before I came on board when they were conceiving of how the website would work and then afterwards after I came on in discussions with, with additional people, is thinking about ways that we can talk to people safely without having them be implicated if they're concerned something they said might reflect poorly on them. And so I talk with a lot of groups anonymously, both here in the U.S. and around the world. And the goal is to build up a relationship of trust so that they know that they can tell me things. I won't use any of their information without their explicit permission. And that includes pretty anodyne 
anonymous things, but I, I really want to make sure that people feel like they can talk openly with me. And so we've had some groups very generously say, sure, okay, you can you can use, you know, my example without their name attached to it. So we could say, oh, two groups, you know, submitted these forms as part of this process, right? And we don't say which groups or what they're working on, and that's fine. Or, you know, one group said that they had this experience. And that's allowed us to get some, you know, practical on the ground experience on the website. Another way that I kind of go around, get around this problem is, again, using this data. So if, if somebody tells me something or if I hear something from multiple different groups and I think it's reliable information, I try to find other ways to represent that. So it's not tied to any one group. You know, if, if someone mentions like, hey, I don't think anybody is being able to work on XYZ topic, then I can go in the data and I can say, OK, you're right. It doesn't look like it's reflected. And then I can write a blog post focusing on the data itself. Just noting, you know, truths that are there available. And again, that's another way of allowing people to feel like they can talk openly with me without me having to splash their information around. And, and you're right, that is a really big concern. Let's let maybe talk a little bit about the law. And um, now that, I don't know, it has been in effect for a year almost. How would you describe the situation of the Let's talk about foreign NGOs first, maybe. I can imagine it's difficult to kind of summarize because they're all engaged in different fields. But um, maybe you can give us a sort of a feeling how this has influenced their work on the ground in China. Yeah, I think it really depends on who you're talking to, what they're working on, where they're working, how long they've been there, what kind of group they are, what kind of experience they've had in China, what's the organizational capacity. It's just a really varied bunch of organizations. I frequently get asked, is it better or is it worse? And it's really, really hard to give a blanket answer to that. As of last week, I want to say it's 354 organizations that have registered. Now that I've said that, that number is not going to be right, but it's something in that range. And there's around 650 temporary activities that have been filed for. So it's not that no one has been registered. However, I think that As I was alluding to before, there's certain types of work that more easily find purchase in China now than, than they could before. And it's not necessarily that the sorts of work that the Chinese government supports or is excited about has changed all that much. But when you introduce a formal registration process, it allows a lot more latitude to kind of formally approve or quietly disapprove of certain types of work. So, you know, we have a lot of things that align very closely with clear Chinese government priorities, poverty alleviation, education. A lot of groups are working in those sectors. We haven't seen anybody yet registered working on LGBTQ issues. Very few groups working on media or human rights issues. None of that's really a surprise. I know, and again, it depends on your organizational capacity for how difficult this process may have been for you. So if you're a very small organization, maybe you only have two or three people, maybe you're not based in China, maybe you don't have any Chinese-speaking staff, this is going to be a, a much bigger lift for you because you have to try to suddenly make sense of all these forms and uh, all these processes, formal and informal, that you need to go through to try to either file for a temporary activity or get registered. If, on the other hand, you're 10, 20, 30-person organization, you've been in China for 10, 20, 30 years, you know the deal. And it's not like it's a check a few boxes and then you're done process. There's a lot of work still involved, but you're better equipped to manage all of those bureaucratic processes. And you, you probably have better sense of expectations in terms of how the flow is going to go, where things might get hung up. So it's really a range of experiences of what I've heard from different groups, how easy or positive or negative kind of they feel about it. 
Sure. So if you have a lot of experience in China, then it's maybe easier to get over the bureaucratic process that is involved. Um, but I, I don't know if the number is right. I read something that there's more than 7,000 foreign NGOs active in China. Now you're saying that some 300, whatever, have been registered. What do all the others do? Do you have any information on that? I mean, there's a lot of NGOs who don't have a permit to work in China anymore, right? Okay, I'm going to clarify terms, first of all, because I think I wasn't totally clear before. The 350-something organizations that have registered, that's actually the number of offices that have been established, and some organizations have more than one office. So if you are, I think Oxfam, for example, has like six offices registered, and that would count as six within that 350 total. So it's even a smaller number of organizations actually that have registered. I don't remember the exact number. I think it's around 300, maybe a little bit less. The number 7,000 that you mentioned as total active foreign NGOs in China, I'm not really sure where that number actually came from or what it refers to. And I don't use it personally as like a benchmark. I dragooned an intern with me last summer to try to figure out the, this exact question, who was there before? Um, because only if you know kind of who was there before can you really meaningfully say this is what's changed, right? So we know the numerator, which is the number of organizations that are now like openly successfully working in China. But what's the denominator, the number of organizations that had been there previously? There's really no good way to figure that out. Uh, if anybody has a brilliant idea, please let me know. We went through the China Development Brief database set up around 2010. You had entries from around 2010, 2011, 2012 of groups, international groups that were working in China that wanted their information included in this database. So it's not comprehensive. It was an opt-in database. But it was better than anything else we had. There was no sort of formal mechanism that the government had been using before to track who was working there. And indeed, that's one of the reasons they wanted this law. They want better insight completely reasonably into what groups are working in China. So we went through that database, called through it, pulled out all the international groups, and then I've stripped out the ones that are overlapping, so ones that were there before and now are registered, and tried to use like those remaining information to figure out like what's happening now. If you're not registered, where what's your deal? I haven't gotten a satisfactory answer to some of that. I mean, for a lot of groups that I've talked to, they're still really trying to get registered, right? So maybe what they're doing is they're carrying out temporary activities in the meantime, and are still trying to find, if you want to get registered, you have to have a government entity called a professional supervisory unit to partner with you and sponsor you. Maybe they're trying to find that unit. And in the meantime, they're going to do temporary activities so they can keep work in China. Some groups are just holding steady, not really doing anything, still trying to figure out what to do. I think for groups that never had a permanent presence in China that, you know, always were based abroad, but maybe did activities once or twice, they either are waiting and seeing or maybe finding other ways to do that. But it's really hard to know what's happening because we don't know what was there before. That sounds really challenging. <laughs> Coming back to the foreign NGOs, is there any signs that people will pull out? This is actually one of the hardest things I'm trying to figure out is, is are people going to pull out or are they already pulling out? And if so, why? Right. There's a there's a range of different reasons that someone might leave. It could just be that, like, the bureaucratic hassle is too much. The cost is too much. There's a very elaborate process that has to do with the fact that China is not a signatory to the Apostille Convention, which means that notarized documents in foreign countries 
aren't recognized in China. So you have to go through a really elaborate notarization uh, certification process, at least in the U.S. I assume it's similar in Europe, which is quite expensive and time consuming. So again, if you're a smaller NGO or you're not that well funded, that can be make or break for you. That might be one reason someone leaves. Someone else might choose to leave because they can't do the work that they want to do. It's not approved either by their professional supervisory unit or tacitly by by public security authorities. Or maybe they just have staff that kind of got skittish about the law and, and working with a foreign NGO. And so they've kind of lost on the ground staff. I mean, there's just a million reasons why a group might leave. You'll, you'll see on the website, I haven't reported of anybody deciding to pull up stakes completely from China and leave. And I'm not aware any yet of yet, although I've heard that heard tell that that's happening in some cases. I suspect that actually this year is going to be the year where we start to see people make that decision. Because I think a lot of people were able to, um, over the course of 2017, find ways to support their organizations in China, right? You can do that for a year. You can kind of float it. It's difficult, but you can do it. It becomes a lot more difficult if you're dragging onto your two, three. How do you how do you justify spending money to support an office or to support, support staff or, or whatever if, if it looks like things aren't really progressing? So I actually suspect this year is going to be a lot more telling in terms of what happens with active foreign NGOs in China than, than was last year. I think we needed a year to kind of figure out what was going on. Well, the more important it is for all of us to follow what's happening on your website. Yeah. <laughs> When talking about NGOs, people mostly think of politically engaged NGOs and organizations. But of course, in China, there's also a lot of charitable work going on, sometimes foreign organizations cooperating with locals. And I'm wondering, doesn't China kind of damage itself if it keeps those organizations from, from working on the ground. What do you think are the motives of the Chinese government to keep these people from doing their work? Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of groups that are doing things that are beneficial for China as a whole, but also for the Chinese government and for the CCP. I don't think the motives of this law were to shut down foreign civil society, foreign NGO activity in China. I think that's oversimplified. I think, you know, there's this primary sort of goal of understanding, really trying to even understand at a very basic level what sort of foreign activity was happening in China. I had someone describe the pre-foreign NGO law days as the Wild West. I mean, you could just show up and rent a desk somewhere and, you know, be not registered in any way and nobody knew you were there or what you were doing. So, you know, on one hand, I, I think that's a completely sort of realistic desire to at least have some general vague sense of what people are there doing. But, you know, it also, as we talked about earlier, gets back to there's certain categories of work that they want to have happen that support CCP goal. And there's other categories that they find potentially threatening or harmful. Advocacy, advocacy work related to rights. I guess the F Feminist Five would be a really good example, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with feminism per se. And a whole part of the CCP mythology is based on this idea that women hold up half the sky. But it becomes problematic when you are advocating for rights outside the CCP system, right? All of that advocacy is supposed to come within Tijerne, like within the system, yeah. I think the thought there is that while that may be all well and good and may eventually be linked to long-term good for Chinese society, the threat that comes with it, the idea that people could organize and advocate for, for things outside the system is so threatening that it's worth whatever potential cost. And in this case, it's worth whatever, you know, however many NGOs you have to lose for that cause. I just think, you know, if you look at in their mind, 
the threat calculus benefit always comes down very heavy. The threat is too potentially great. And again, a lot of groups are having trouble doing uh, work that they want to do there, why that, whether for bureaucratic or political reasons. But again, it, you can see there are still hundreds of groups registered. It's if, if they had wanted to fully stop foreign NGO activity in China, they could have been a lot more aggressive about it. So I really don't think that was the goal. It's it's understand, monitor, and be able to more effectively check activities that they don't see as helpful. Which means that in more, I, I call it harmless, in quote-unquote um, areas, of foreign activities will be easy. Once you're registered, you will be able to work in the area. I'm, I'm thinking about like poverty alleviation or elderly care, stuff like that. I mean, China is trying to kind of keep its social system running and it probably needs foreign organizations' help. So do you think that will be easier uh, to continue work there? Will others maybe switch to those areas? I mean, there's always been talk of that, that uh, once a politically interested organizations would switch to more harmless areas like health, whatever. Is that happening? Do you see that? I think there's two parts to this. One of which is that in terms of ease or difficulty of work, it's really hyper dependent on where you are trying to work. And what may be really easy to get done in one province may be really, really difficult in another. And for apparently no better reason other than like the dude who's sitting at the desk approving, you know, this application is, you know, just more risk averse in this place than he is in the other place. Right. You know, I think even groups that are working on these non-sensitive issues like poverty alleviation or health really do have an easier or harder time of it, depending on where they are and, and who they're interacting with and, you know, what their relationships have been like with their partners, how, you know, politically connected are those partners, those sorts of things. So it's really dependent, not just on the work, but on where you happen to be in China. And then the other thing is that I should have mentioned this, you know, before when I was talking about the goals of the foreign NGO law. I mean, China, China really is trying to activate domestic civil society again along these in these sectors that that they want help with. Right. The the hope would be, I guess, that whatever foreign NGOs might decide that they don't want to engage in this anymore, it's not worth their trouble, that you now have this like invigorated domestic civil society that can step into the breach and and fill this role. And, and honestly, from an outside international civil society perspective, that's a great thing. Like what you do want is a vibrant local civil society. They're better able to assess what you know needs on the ground are and to fill those more effectively in like a culturally sensitive way. So that's not all bad. But I think that if people decide... They don't want to be there, they don't want to leave, or they find certain kinds of work hard. Domestic civil society hopefully will be there to like fill in the gap. And, and also around the same time as the foreign NGO law was announced, the charity law went into effect in, in 2016, I think at the end of April 2016. And so that offered a lot of clarity for domestic groups, finally, how they're able to operate, what the formal mechanisms should be for for them to do certain things and how to get funding and, and all of that. So, you know, there is a bifurcation of domestic and foreign civil society. But at the same time, it's a little bit of a boost for civil domestic civil society in terms of they know how to operate now and maybe they'll be better prepared and equipped in a formal way to kind of fill in any of the gaps that are left by foreign civil society that finds these new regulations to onerous. So you see positive effects of the charity law, I understand by what you just said. Yeah, interesting. 
there used to be a lot of discussions in policy circles in Europe about the NGO law, but now it seems to have abated. You don't hear very much. The mo most influential foundations have find, found a way to get by in China. Judging from your monitoring of the whole situation, do you think there is still a need for politicians to step up or to talk to Chinese counterparts that there has to be improvement of sorts? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think just like anything else, when anything's new or shiny happening, we all kind of focus on it. and I include myself in that, right? You get excited about whatever's happening most recently. But as we talked about before, you know, a lot of the longer term effects of this law aren't really going to be known. You know, they weren't known last year. They, they may not be known by the end of this year. It may take, you know, three, four, five years to kind of really feel how this settles out through the whole system. But, you know, as we said, there's around 300 groups and unique groups that have been able to register offices. While I don't trust the 7,000 number, I do think that the number of organizations is larger than 300, right? So that means you have this, this unknown number of organizations that are still struggling to get registered. And a lot of those are known to their governments. And so I do think that there is a role for other governments to kind of advocate for these folks, or at least understand what the pressures that their civil society actors are facing when they're trying to work in China. Okay, so we just <laughs> Thank you very much for being part of this podcast and uh, wish you all the best for your project. Well, thanks again. And you were listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast of Mercato Institute for China Studies. I'm Claudia Westling and hope to hear you all again very soon. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Mercato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.